Welcome to the WealthCast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles. Hello and welcome to the WealthCast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On today's episode, I discuss the importance of having a clear mission in both your personal and professional life with Dr. Joseph Pika. Joe earned his doctorate in organizational theory at Indiana University, where he was the MBA program director and was instrumental in helping the program achieve a ranking of seventh in the nation. In addition, Joe is also a successful entrepreneur, having founded Educational Benchmarking Inc. in 1994 and selling it to Macmillan in 2012. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the WealthCast today. I so much appreciate your time. It's really a pleasure to be here, Jazz. When we were discussing just a couple of weeks ago the idea of, of having this podcast, we talked about lots of different subjects that may be of interest to the listeners. And I think we settled on mission and the importance of mission as sort of the central concept. But I think there's a step before that, Joe, and you and I have had these conversations many times over the years about the central idea, the sort of the first step is that you need to think about doing well in your career or with your business by doing good. Why don't we start the conversation there and then move on to the importance of mission? I think that's a great place to start. And I look back over my career and recognize that the mission part of trying to make a difference in the world drove my professional career from beginning to end. It also created the opportunities for me that having something I cared deeply about that I was invested in, it gave me the opportunity to really focus on what was important in my life and knowing that if it was important to me, that I would be motivated. So, how this goes. Every job that I had, I was focused on making a difference in the lives of college students. That was my mission in life. So, along the way, that was my, how I thought I could do good. That's where I wanted to do good. And I would do that in my job, and I would also do it outside my job. I would volunteer to do things. Never really had a, any other drive except to make a difference. But by volunteering to do those things, it drove my career path in ways I could have never anticipated. My company started not because I sat down one day and said, I think I want to start a company. My company evolved from the fact that I was driven to make a difference in the lives of college students. And I volunteered to do a project that I thought would do that. I volunteered to do a benchmarking project with my fellow professionals who were all directors of MBA programs. And I said, listen, I think this will make a difference in the lives of the students who we work with every single day. And they agreed, said that we think that's a good idea. So on my own time, I put together a benchmarking study that said, I think this would really be a value to us. And they all agreed. I put it together and made a presentation at a conference with my business partner, who was going to be my business partner. And Everybody looked at this and said, wow, we think this is valuable too. And I looked at my business partner and said, listen, I'd be willing to do this on my own time, as he said he would. And if we'll charge enough money that we can break even, and if we can get 
20 schools to do this project, it will be a really great start and we can expand our mission to many, many, many more college students. So we put it together. The first year we had 50 schools signed up to do it. The second year we had 100 schools. All of a sudden I'm faced with, wow, this is turning into a business. This is turning into a way for my partner and I to expand our reach for our mission. Now we can make a difference in the lives, not of hundreds of MBA students, but thousands of MBA students. Can you explain, Joe, how, how the benchmarking improved their lives? You know, what, what was the output that the universities would use, what the schools would use to change their offering in a way that made the life of the student better? Well, there were two different approaches to benchmarking, and I'll, I'll give you the two that we did and how they each had an impact. One of them was a quantitative approach. The institutions provided us with information about what their budgets were. Where did they spend their money? They gave us information on how effective they were in recruiting students. What was their marketing budget? How many people eventually applied to their program? What was their yield? How many of those people actually accepted? How many of those people actually attended? Nobody had a sense of how effective their efforts were without being able to compare it to their peers. The other thing we did is we let them pick their peers, which had never been done before. Now, at the time that we were generating and starting this, there had not been a successful benchmarking project in higher education. So we were breaking new ground with the way that we wanted to approach this and to do it. What we recognize is if people saw that they were being inefficient or that they were below an average. In other words, that they weren't getting nearly as many applications or they weren't able to attract the level of quality. We let them look at all the elements that they looked at to make a decision. We said, listen, our quality, is, we thought it was, but it's not. It allowed them to turn and focus their limited resources on those things that they felt were most important in improving the quality of candidates, and then the quality of education. That's what benchmarking so powerfully does. But the real benefit comes from after gathering this from hundreds of programs, we were able to identify those people in the different areas that were really good at what they did. Then we went in and we did an in-depth research project because we could identify best practices. These are the people that have come up with a methodology that allows them to excel at what will drive mission fulfillment. And then we shared that with everyone because our goal wasn't to make one institution better. Our goal was to make all of those programs better so that MBA students across the country could benefit. So you raise the, the level as a whole, which basically raised the level of all the ships or all the schools at the same time. Exactly. That was the goal. That was the goal. And then, after doing MBA programs, we said, well, why not do residence halls? I had a background in residence halls, and there's thousands of students that are living in residence halls, and that the residence halls have a mission about the impact they want to have on the lives of the students that live in their facilities. So we developed an assessment that would give the students the ability to provide the administration feedback about how they perceived 
the quality of their experience. We also went back and tied that to the mission statements of the professional organizations. What I discovered in working with, I ended up working with housing organizations, nursing organizations, engineering education organizations, and that when we created our assessments, we went back to their professional organizations and we looked at what their mission was as a professional. And the reason we did that was we discovered that many of those programs had mission drift. They got involved in things they thought were valuable, but weren't really focused on their core mission. And our goal was to bring them back to the mission, first of all. Secondly, was to give them information that was actionable. We wanted to be able to say, we're going to let you know exactly where you should put your limited and scarce resources to have the impact of doing good based on your mission. It was all statistically based. One of the things we faced in working in higher education is that our clients, who I called partners, were all essentially highly educated, scientific people who wanted to have statistical evidence of our outcomes. It wasn't good enough to say, I thought it worked. I had to provide them with hard evidence and they were researchers. So there was a standard of research that had to be met. The beauty of that is that it drove us to be experts because we understood that the way to fulfill the mission is to be able to provide the evidence that it actually works. You know that making decisions based on your mission and making sure that your decision-making as a business owner is in line with your mission and is improving someone's outcomes is the best way to be successful. Can you share an example of a decision that you had to make at EBI that you decided not to do because it really wasn't aligned with the mission that you were trying to achieve? Were there opportunities that you, that you had to forego or that you decided to forego? Yes, there were. There were people who came to us and said, we would like you to do some work for us. They were private companies. They were, or they were driven to say, listen, our goal is to make more money. And so we look at what you're doing and we think that you'd be helpful in, in providing us with, and I'd have a discussion and say, well, that's not what we're about. We don't really want to talk about making more money. We want to talk about you fulfilling what your mission would be. With our clients and our partners, it was almost a revelation to them in what we were able to provide them that changed the way they did their business. What we recognized was if we couldn't change the way that they worked, we couldn't improve the quality of what they did. And I'll give you an interesting example of how that worked. We developed surveys where students could provide feedback about all the critical elements that were driven by the mission and by the, uh, of that profession to say, these are the things that, are, that we do. This is students' perceptions of what they are. So students would fill out a 100-question survey. And it's amazing that they were willing to do it. But they, they wanted to provide feedback because they had some things they were concerned about. The revelation to our clients, because when they got the survey back, they wanted to go fix what students liked the least. All right. They, doesn't that make sense? Listen, it does make sense. They're most unhappy about this. Let's go fix that. But by doing 
our analysis, which was a regression analysis, we were able to say to them, what you really want to focus your limited resources on is what's most important to them. Because we now know that if you fix what's important, that their overall perception of the quality of their experience will go up. If you fix what they don't like, it won't. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but that's the power of using a scientific method to determine what to do. Curiously, the thing they liked the least was never the thing that was most important to them. So they were spending the resources to fix something that had no impact on the overall perception of the quality of their experience. Yeah, that's interesting. Once we directed their efforts to what was important, in that next survey, they saw if they were successful in addressing that issue, the student's overall perception of the quality of their experience improved. That's sort of an example of, of something that we've talked about before, just in our previous conversations about giving the client what they need rather than what they want or telling them what they need rather than what they want. And that dovetails perfectly in that concept. Yes. What we recognize as we developed an expertise, I was looking at across all of our client areas, there were 2,500 academic programs that we had information about. And in any one particular discipline, say full-time MBA programs, we knew more about what was going on in the nation than anyone. So we had a responsibility to say to our client, we understand this at a very deep level, we're going to do presentations, we're going to write papers to give you insights about what's happening beyond your small microcosm. Your depth of understanding will be improved because we now have developed an expertise that is for the entire nation and for all programs, not just yours. So understanding that, because they would come to us and say, we really, you know, this is what we want to do. And we would say to them, well, <laughs> that may be so, but it's not part of your mission. It won't drive the outcomes that are most important to you. So keep them focused. A, you become the expert. You educate them so they have a better understanding of what their role is supposed to be. And the wonderful part at the end was after gathering all this information, we would go back again and do best practices. How do we help you, not only with identifying what your issues are and what is having a negative impact on that perceived overall quality, here are methodologies and approaches you can use that will improve those things because they're always the things that are hard to improve. Presumably, Joe, many of these educational institutions had missions that were very similar, presumably. I, I, I've never seen them all. They're identical. They're not similar <laughs> because their professional organization has specifically outlined what their mission should be. So we stop mission drift. We reinforce what they're trying to do. And that wasn't hard because almost all of those people were there because they cared deeply about it. And their mission was the same as my mission. We had, there was no difference in what that would be. Our goal was to focus on continuous improvement. And that's really was at the heart 
of how I ran the company and about how we played a role in the lives of those professionals. We said to them, you can't do this once. Our approach is we're going to evaluate, we're going to give you information that's going to be prescriptive about what you need to do to better improve your mission. You're going to do an intervention. And as soon as we think enough time has gone by that that should have made a difference, we're going to assess immediately. We want that timetable to be as short as possible. We want to give you feedback along the way. Sometimes what you do will have an impact that's really positive. You'll build it into how you're going to do things in the future. Sometimes your intervention didn't work. You need to know that so you can go back, look at best practices again, figure out what you did that didn't give you your expected outcome, and try it again. But you can always be better. And so this is not a, boy, I'm going to be better tomorrow. It is a process of how do we continually get better over time and keep our finger on the pulse of an evolving population of people in an evolving profession. Yep. And if you do that, you'll always have your finger right on the pulse and you'll always be getting information that will point you in the right direction. You'll always have people that will help you with a methodology that worked for them. And the people in your organization will be driven because they're going to see positive results. And there's nothing more rewarding to people in your organization than having hard outcome evidence that their efforts had a positive impact on the lives of the people that they cared most about. Yeah, that, that their efforts are helping fulfill the mission. Exactly. You know, it's, it's really interesting to me that it's sort of a series of dominoes as I see it. You know, you sitting in your office at, at Indiana, you saw, you saw a need. You, saw, you had a desire to improve the lives of the students based on your experience. You saw a need that was based on the fact that the data just wasn't available for these institutions to act upon. So you developed a mission to improve that situation, to improve the students' lives by creating a tool that these institutions could use to continuously improve their own student experience. Then you proposed this idea. It was widely successful in the first year and second year, up to 100 universities, 100 institutions. And then you eventually built an organization where everyone was aligned around that mission, where you developed the capabilities, and that organization became valuable. And you were able to sell that organization after, I, I can't remember, I can't recall, how many years was it that you, that you operated before you sold it? 16 years. 16 years. So there's a perfect example to me of doing well by doing good. You started with an, a, the, the primary mission was to help these people have a better experience. And it almost accidentally turned into a really successful business. I, I know there's a lot of work. Well, let me, let me qualify accidentally. Yeah, yeah it, that's an extreme statement I, I acknowledge. Well, no, but, it, but it's a good one because a lot of people think that what they are doing is either luck or accident. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've discovered over time was that's rarely the case. Not that there aren't circumstances that were supportive and helped you or made that opportunity better. Yep. But, and I look, having known so many people through my experience as an MBA director of, of watching a lot of other people be successful, 
and doing a little research to find out that luck was the lesser part of people's success. And real quick example is that this benchmarking effort was my third attempt. 10 years prior to my doing and volunteering to do the MBA benchmarking study, I had done a benchmarking study with a group of fellow professionals because we were at a conference and everybody said, you know, we don't have any idea of how much we're being paid. Now, it's always been a secret. No one wants to say it. And, but we don't know whether we're being dramatically underpaid in comparison to other people in the country. So I raised my hand and said, hey, I volunteered to do a benchmarking study. I'll keep everybody anonymous, but I'll be able to do it by size of institution. There'll be enough of us that will be protected, and I'll do the analysis and send it back to everyone. And that was my first benchmarking study. When I went to the MBA world and I started to go to meetings that the Graduate Management Admissions Council, the same thing happened. People said, you know, I don't know if my salary. I offered to do it and I did it again. Then I went to a conference on higher education benchmarking. And it was a study, national study that was done by one of the big seven, because there were seven accounting firms, big accounting firms at the time. And they talked about a project that they did and what they learned from it, but had failed. It wasn't successful. It, I think they recognized just how complicated and difficult. It was from that conference that I went back to my Big Ten directors and said, I want to do this. So there were 300 people at that conference. One guy stepped out and said, I think I want to take this another step further, and I think I really want to do it. Now, I'm not saying that because I'll look at me, because it wasn't. It's evidence of what happens when you're mission-driven. You're so driven to make a difference that you're always looking for a better and most effective way that you can do it. And not only for yourself, but now I have the opportunity to do it for a larger number of people and to bring them along, to educate them. My job was an educator. And so within our company, what we said was, if we are really good at what we do, we'll do well because we're not in it for the money, we're in it for making a difference. And if you make a difference, people are gonna to wanna to be a part of your program. So whenever we sat down, the first thing we would say is, whatever we were talking about, is this part of our mission? We would say, is this part of our mission? And secondly, is it, how will it help us better fulfill that mission? I think, Joe, you know, doing well by doing good, it's sort of a, a, a battle cry in terms of keeping you focused. Um, and, but it's not the only way to do well. You know, you don't have to do well that way. But I think, you know, it's, it has to be the most fulfilling, personally fulfilling way to do well. You know, you sleep better. You're, it's easier to get motivated. If you believe in your mission, you know, like uh, Joseph Campbell used to say, following your bliss. Follow the thing that really, really gets you moving, gets you energized. And you, I can tell just by having the conversation how energizing that was for you. How about, you know, the lessons that you learned in that whole process over more than 16 years? Because it, you had, as you said, some pilot programs before you started EBI that were, that were stepping stones to that. How, how did you take that experience and, and coming full circle back to the students? I know for years you would go speak to each MBA class at Indiana and give them 
your experience or share your experiences with that, with them and and some some ideas for them to percolate on what was the central message of those of those presentations or those discussions well the way what happens to successful people and i know that everybody has experienced this in their career is that in the beginning when you have a mission you're typically working in what i call you're working right at the base level you're in the roots of it so when i started my mission of helping college students, I was doing it personally. I started out as an RA in the residence halls because I wanted to make a difference in the lives of the students that lived on my floor. And it was great because I got to know them and to see them. And when I made a difference, I could see their faces. And that was extremely rewarding. But for anybody marching through a career, the more successful you get, the further away you get from that direct contact. So while working with MBA students, which was the group that I was focused on, was really valuable. And as an MBA program director, I got to know those people. It was fantastic. But as I evolved in the company, while I was able to help far greater numbers of MBAs, I got distance from them. Because now I'm running a company and I'm fulfilling my mission through other people. One of the things I didn't want to lose was that direct contact. So at Indiana, I was fortunate that they invited me to work with a class for every single incoming undergraduate student. And I would do the first lecture of that class. And over the time that I lectured there, I stood in front of 30,000 students. And I was able to give them my messages about what I thought it took to be successful. And it was rewarding because I got a lot of feedback from those people, not only immediately after my lecture, but I would have emails come to me years later of people saying, I remembered what you said, and it was really extremely helpful to me. That's what drives us, knowing that and knowing that for every person who told you, there were probably a lot of others who felt it who just didn't make the effort. Right. I'm sure that knowing you as I do, that circular experience where coming back to the students and then going back to work and working on the mission, those experiences, I imagine, gave you a lot of fuel. Absolutely. And, and it's, from my perspective, knowing sometimes, whether it's in academia or business or wherever it may be, that you, you're going to hit a rough spot, right? You're going ha- to hit a difficult period for whatever reason. Every business has it. Every, every career has it. But being on a mission that you believe in, that you have dedicated yourself to, gives you the energy you need to go through or over or around whatever that blocking thing is. That's a great point uh, because I got to know a lot of other entrepreneurs because when you are one and you're connected to a business school, you end up having access to a number of those stories and you get to see them. And one of the things I learned was that the people I saw that were extremely successful were the ones that were truly mission-driven. Because there were some people that said, listen, my goal in life is to make a lot of money. And so, okay, well, that's your goal. But when the going gets tough, you know, for 12 months, I worked 80 hours a week. Now, I'm, I'm not in any way saying that's a smart thing to do, by the way. But it was what was required. But I was driven to do it because I could see it starting to come together. And I was eager to do it as quickly as I could. And I would fight through and investing those hours 
I was excited about doing that. What I discovered was people driven by money, that that faded pretty quickly when the road got really difficult. It wasn't enough of a driver for them to be able to do it. But the people that had a mission were really, really driven beyond any sacrifice because it was an intrinsic return for them. They cared about it deeply, and that's why they did what they did. That made a difference, not only in the amount of time, but their drive to find a way to fulfill it. People think that we look at entrepreneurs and we have this assumption because we see a lot of young tech entrepreneurs that all entrepreneurs are young people. We know that in the research, because I always like to go back and say, well, what, what do we really know about entrepreneurs? Well, we know that the average age of an entrepreneur is in their 50s, not their 20s. That those people that we're seeing in the tech world, they're the people that are the exception. They're not the rule. All right. So I'm encouraging people that are older <laughs> to not give up. If there's <laughs> right. something you really care about, you're probably in your prime and have a greater chance of success because the reason people are older when they become entrepreneurs is that they have a tremendous amount of experience, education, contacts that put themselves in a position to be able to do that. So that reminds me of a, of a quote that I saw recently that basically said, if you limit your choices to what seems possible or reasonable, you disconnect yourself from what you truly want and all that's left is compromise. Yes. And, and that can apply at any age, right? Yes. But it, it also speaks to the idea of just sort of tilting at windmills a little bit. You know, you, you set, your, set your mission big, Set your goals big because anything else is, is simply compromising. And when I started, trust me, there were a lot of people that looked at me and said, you're wasting your time, Joe. This isn't going to work. Uh, you, this is just, you know, you're thinking about something. Here's a hundred reasons why this is going to fail, that you really shouldn't be doing this. There's other things you should probably be doing that would make a bigger difference in lives and I remember when I was, for a while, I overlapped. I was working as a director of the MBA program and an assistant dean, and I was getting this company started. And at some point, the growth exploded, and I had to make a decision. And so I, I left to try and make this venture work. And I can remember one of my fellow professionals inside the business school came to me and said, you're crazy to be leaving here. We have the best retirement plan. It's an easy place to work. You've got really good colleagues. You live in a great town. You know, why would you take this risk? It, because it probably isn't going to work out for you. And I said what I heard many other entrepreneurs that I knew. I have to do this. I am driven to do this. This is what's important to me. This is my mission in life. And I'm willing to take that risk because the return will be greater than I could have ever imagined. And that's a difficult thing for people. Yeah, without that focus, without the, the, the having that, the fuel of the mission, you may have succumbed to the naysayers. They may have beaten you into submission, so to speak. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I've seen that so many times. Um, I've heard this similar story from other folks as to the importance of having that source of energy. And I think that that, you know, for today's conversation is a great, is a great place to stop. From my perspective, the central message is, and I'd be interested in your comments on this in closing, that, that the mission 
the mission is the fuel source. It is what gives you the energy that you need to overpower the difficult situations and to push it through to completion in the, in the difficult periods. And if that mission is built on helping people do well by doing good for them, it's even more powerful. Does that, does that sum it up? Yeah, it, it does. It does. It, it has to be something that you care about beyond what you see as a perceived return. You do it because you have to. You do it because you love it. You do it because of that feeling of knowing, that that positive feeling of knowing that you've had a positive impact on somebody's life is the most rewarding thing you could do in a profession. By the way, there's so many professions that that's how people got drawn into them, that it was not driven by the amount of money they wanted to make. Now, uh, the corollary to that is working in the MBA world, I saw MBAs make decisions about their careers based on what their income would be. They just said, listen, I'm, I'm really smart and what I want to do is make a lot of money. So I'm going to do this because these people seem to make the most money. Sadly, or maybe <laughs> they discovered that while they were successful, and I, by the way, I knew a number of MBAs who became very wealthy. I also knew a number of those that were very unhappy. While they were able to make money at what they did, it wasn't fulfilling to them. Many of them eventually left that to go do something different. And maybe the good news is, is that their wealth gave them the opportunity once they discovered a mission that was more intrinsic than extrinsic, that they didn't have to worry about how much money they would make doing it. But the number of people who were driven that way that left to find something else, I wasn't surprised each time that happened, that it just didn't fulfill them. After they'd filled up their bank account, they realized that they just sipped that wasn't enough, that they had to go find something that they really deeply cared about. So in our lives, what I hope for most people, and by the way, I think it's the role of education, is to give people a broad enough view to find that thing that they really care about. College students take lots of different courses, and many times they discover something they care deeply about because they took one class and it just lit their fuse, but it pointed them in the direction of what their future mission was going to be, and it is one of the purposes of higher education. Very well said, Joe, and I think, um, you know, finding the thing that lights your fuse and that creates the mission is the central message here. I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation, and I'm sure we're going to have others on various topics in the future, and I look forward to those as well, but I, I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time with me today. Thank you, Chaz. This was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Okay, we'll talk again soon, Joe. Okay. Thanks for joining Joe Pika and me for our discussion on the benefit that a clear mission can play in your personal and professional life. Please subscribe to The Wealthcast on your favorite podcast platform. And for a transcript of this episode, please visit our website, thewealthcast.com. Thanks for tuning into The Wealthcast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at independenceadvisors.com. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The Wealthcast. 
This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.